Welcome back to Lighting the Pipes Noir. I'm your host, Joshua Taylor, and in this episode, we will be reviewing Alfred Hitchcock's 1943 thriller, Shadow of a Doubt. Now, for those not familiar with our main podcast, Lighting the Pipes, probably because you came to Lighting the Pipes Noir through some Instagram hashtag like Film Noir or Noir or something of the like, um, this is a podcast where I and my co-host Scott Powell explore the mystery novel. Our first season, we deal with the Arthur Conan Doyle Sherlock Holmes adventures. In season two, uh, more appropriate to you know the idea of film noir, we do Raymond Chandler's Philip Marlowe. So if you're a fan of noir and want to learn more about the source material of it, please check out Lighting the Pipes and just enjoy it on its own as you know something of my cousin and I really exploring what we love about uh, reading and of course what we love about the mystery novel and how strong it is in our in our literary culture. So if you're a fan, please check that out. Um, but this series, um, Lighting the Pipes Noir, it focuses on, you guessed it, film noir. So in that, in that sense, you're probably wondering why I would select a Hitchcock film. Well, if you know anything about Alfred Hitchcock, and I don't mean to sound condescending, it did come out that way though, didn't it? Uh, he is, quote unquote, the master of suspense, and some consider him to be the father of the psychological thriller. His contribution to cinema started in the 1920s, British-born, uh, he began his career working in the silent film industry, um, eventually working his way up to become a director. With the advent of the talkie, his output increased, and it's safe to say, with films like The 39 Steps, the original The Man Who Knew Too Much, and The Lady Vanishes, Alfred Hitchcock was a pioneer in the spy film genre. But then Hitler invaded Poland in September 39, and everything changed. Hitchcock took his craft across the pond to Hollywood, and there made his first American film, Rebecca. Both Rebecca and its follow-up Suspicion were set in England. Now, while it can be argued that Saboteur was the first of Hitch's films to be set in the United States, it was practically a remake of the cross-country spy romp, The 39 Steps. You could easily swap the two countries for the story and not tell the difference. My opinion. But with Shadow of a Doubt, we have a film set in the small Napa Valley town of Santa Rosa, California. Well, it was set there once the screenplay was done, of course. But just in general setting up the story, here lives the Newton family, and Uncle Charlie is coming to visit, and with him he is bringing darkness to the American suburb. About that. Detective thrillers were kind of getting old at this point, uh, even though, you know, the Maltese Falcon kickstarted film noir, you know, with the Dashiell Hammett adaptation. Uh, then you, of course, had writers like James N. Cain, uh, whose double indemnity, adapted only a year after Shadow of a Doubt, would bring sex and violence to suburbia. And oh, in truth, Hitchcock actually beat Kane and Billy Wilder uh, to the punch. Shadow of a Doubt uh, was directed by a filmmaker who was never in the noir movement. Um, he was there in the heyday of silent film and when German Expressionism, the Weimar period, was still going on, where there was a lot of experimentation in cinematography and storytelling. Now, many of the concepts that, you know, we would take as the noir aesthetic, you know, beyond the adaptation of detective fiction offered the cinema-goer a cynical view of human nature and moral ambiguity. And Hitchcock did this very much so in his own films, despite a little more optimistic in the end. But outside of private dicks, gangsters, and black widows, what Double Indemnity established, and what I think Shadow of a Doubt established prior to that, was the essence of noir, where we're dealing more into world wariness, into cynicism, into a moral ambiguity. We're going more from aesthetic to thematic noir. And this, to me, is when the genre becomes very strong after this point. And 
many scholars would agree with that in terms of uh, the evolution of film noir in cinema. That's my thesis anyway. Film scholars have debated whether Shadow of a Doubt falls under the category of film noir. One can argue that it is merely a product of Hitchcock's that so happens to be produced at the time when the noir movement was galloping forward. With Shadow of a Doubt, others would say thematically it holds with other noir films. Of that, there is no debate. But for the purposes of discourse, I have a special guest on this podcast, a resident Hitchcock expert, if you will, and we will be discussing the stylistic and thematic debate about Shadow of a Doubt's placement in the noir category, among other things. So please stay tuned. Now, the story of how Shadow of a Doubt came into being starts with Gordon McDonnell, a novelist by trade. He had a story about a serial killer called the Merry Widow Killer, about this killer coming to a small town, one with an M.O. based upon a real-life murderer known as the Gorilla Man. Now, the Gorilla Man terrorized in the 1920s. Um, if you look him up, uh, quite a startling individual. So you're welcome, true crime aficionados listening to the podcast. McDonnell just so happened to be married to Margaret McDonnell, who was the head of David O. Selznick's story department. Now, Selznick was a maverick producer, uh, best known for Gone with the Wind and Hitchcock's first American film, Rebecca. So already we have a working relationship established, Hitchcock and Selznick Universal. Now, McDonnell sent the idea to Hitchcock, who followed up with a meeting between Gordon and Margaret at the Brown Derby, which was a very popular, still popular restaurant in Los Angeles, um, where all the stars schmoozed. You ever see a film like, for example, L.A. Confidential, that famous scene where Kevin Spacey and Guy Pierce confront uh, what they think is a duplicate of the actress Lana Turner, uh, what it in fact turns out to be Lana Turner. Uh, it's a great scene. I hate the fact that I mentioned Kevin Spacey in a great scene, but we're not going to go further than that. But that's just what it reminded me of uh, in terms of the Brown Derby. My references in real life are from movies. What can I say? Um, but at the Brown Derby, they, sus they basically planned out the story and all the elements that were to be later realized. Gordon was sent home to type up the initial treatment. Now, perhaps Hitchcock, so used to filming in his native Britain, was insecure about telling a story dealing with American small-town life. Or maybe he was a perfectionist. Maybe. Uh, Hitchcock asked Universal, his employer, to hire Thornton Wilder. Now, Wilder is considered one of the great American playwrights. He wrote Our Town, the great stage production about small-town America. So who better to help tell a story in that setting, one that Hitchcock and his perfectionism wanted to get right down to the littlest detail? In his famous interviews with Francois Truffaut, recorded in 1961, Hitchcock's Last Truffaut, get the book Hitchcock's Last Truffaut because it's fantastic and it should literally be on every film studies 101 syllabus. In that interview, Hitchcock pointed out the difference between the British film industry and Hollywood as night and day. In England, he could ask for anyone. He could collaborate with anyone. Stage, film, radio, print, media. They were all one. Essentially, they worked that way in Hollywood, but in Hollywood, it was a little different because it did not matter of your past European pedigree of work. You had to be someone and you had to know somebody. Lucky for Hitch, uh, with a few American productions under his belt, he did know some people, but even if you asked to collaborate, not everyone would. But Thornton Wilder said yes, and so began the most pleasant, according to Hitchcock, of his collaborations. These two men worked throughout the day on the script. Uh, they enjoyed each other's company and churned out the initial draft of the screenplay. In Hitchcock Truffaut, 
it's mentioned that after um, the, sc the initial screenplay was completed, there were still some touch-ups that had to be done. There needed to be some more comedy in there. And the studio and producer Jack Skirball knew this because the specter of the Second World War was hanging over the proceedings. Thornton Wilder, like many people in the United States at the time, uh, was drafted and would serve his country, uh, rising in the ranks of lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army Air Force Intelligence, to add to his accolades. And he saw action in Africa and Italy up until 1945. So in the time where Shadow of the Dead was being produced in 1943, well, you know, he was not available. So with him out of play, Hitchcock hired Sally Benson to instill lighter comedic moments in the script. The development of the screenplay was also tied into the choosing of Santa Rosa for the setting of the picture. So we'll go back earlier on when they were working on the screenplay together, uh, Hitchcock and Wilder. And part of the development of the screenplay is, was tied into the choosing of Santa Rosa. Now, as mentioned, Santa Rosa, California is nestled in the heart of the Napa Valley, a region of the state known for its wine growing. Hitchcock was quite familiar with the area, having been a constant visitor to the valley's vineyards. He felt this was the ideal locale for the story he wanted to tell, so even before the first draft of the screenplay was written, he, Thornton Wilder, and others scouted various towns, and Santa Rosa took the prize for capturing the realism in terms of its geography and its inhabitants that Hitchcock was aiming for. What set things further in stone for Santa Rosa as the story setting was the finding of a slightly run-down but still standing house in the middle of Santa Rosa. Hitchcock wanted it for the Newton household, and a generous offer was made to its owners. They didn't care if it was a fixer-upper, because they would let Robert Boyle, the art director, shape it to Hitchcock's vision. But once principal photography had got underway and the crew had arrived in Santa Rosa, they were shocked to find the house painted. Apparently the owners got a little too excited with their recent windfall from Universal. So Robert Boyle had to return the house back to its previous condition. Its actual address is 904 McDonald Avenue in Santa Rosa, and is still standing to this day. Mind you, most of what we see of Santa Rosa in the film may as well be some sort of time capsule because the town was stricken with several earthquakes in 1969. The old ivy-covered library in the downtown, utilized in a pivotal sequence of the film, no longer standing. The courthouse you see in the background at the crosswalk scene when the Charlies are strolling to the bank with this 19th century neoclassical look, you know, complete with columns, well, that's no longer there. There's now a modern building in its place. So, of course, things have changed. Um, so the town is sort of captured in time, almost like a Brigadoon sort of situation uh, on film in Shadow of a Doubt. But going back to pre-production, the almost final draft of the screenplay was polished by Hitchcock's right-hand woman and faithful wife, Alma Rivel. Whilst the multitude citizens of Santa Rosa and environs would make fine extras in service to the film's verisimilitude, they still had to get the casting right. And at the top of the casting list for the role of young Charlie Newton was Teresa Wright. Young Charlie Newton is the niece and namesake of the disturbed uncle serial killer. Wright was the ideal girl next door that they wanted for the role. And this was not a weary, cynical city gal, but this was a high school graduate, a, deb a debate team leader and dutiful daughter. And who better than an actress already known for a clause in her contract that prevented any sexual objectification of her person in the promotion of a film. Her debut was The Little Foxes in 1941, opposite Bette Davis, for which Wright was nominated for an Academy Award. She was only 23 years old, and she followed this up with Mrs. Miniver a year later, for which she won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. Then came Pride of, then came Pride of the Yankees, in which she played the role, the very meaty role, of Lou Gehrig's wife. She was nominated again for that film, but didn't win. 
oh well. Wright was under contract with producer Samuel Goldwyn, but was given the screenplay. She was told not to read it. Instead, Hitchcock invited her into his office and, to paraphrase her own words, acted the whole movie out for her then and there. He found his young Charlie and paid good money to Goldwyn to get her on loan. As for Uncle Charlie himself, character actor Joseph Cotton, known for his supporting roles in Orson Welles' Citizen Kane and Welles' Magnificent Ambersons, was cast as Uncle Charlie, the Merry Widow Killer. Cotton had clean-cut good looks, but was not too handsome to be a pretty boy, and could convey the right amount of menace when he wanted to. In the Universal documentary on Shadow of a Doubt, Wright relates how Cotton acted the consummate gentleman with a great sense of humor, but could say the nastiest, darkest things while conveying effortless charisma in doing so. So for Shadow of a Doubt to work, its two leads required perfect chemistry, and Teresa Wright and Joseph Cotton had that in spades. Rounding out the cast, Hume Croman, a young screenwriter, was looking for some work and got himself auditioning for the role of Herb, the neighbor. Uh, he was too young, as he was told when he arrived, but he ended up getting the part immediately upon meeting Hitchcock. Croman would later go on to co-write for Hitchcock, as would Patricia Collinge, the Irish-born thespian who brought Emma-slash-Emmy Newton to brilliant life in Shadow of a Doubt. Some say she steals the picture from Wright and Cotton. But like Croman, she would co-write for Hitchcock, and she would provide polish to the screenplay of Hitchcock's follow-up Lifeboat. But this was because her medal was only tested during the production of Shadow of a Doubt, when she wrote or rewrote a scene between Wright's young Charlie and McDonald Carey, who was playing detective-slash-potential love interest Jack Graham. The actors couldn't get through the scene, so Collins, who had a personal and professional working relationship with Teresa Wright, since a little foxes, offered to write some dialogue to make the lovey-dovey scene in question really shine. As for the rest of the casting, we have Henry Travers, most famous in the present day for his portrayal of Clarence the Angel, you know, the guy who tried and succeeded to get his wings in Frank Capra's Christmas masterpiece, It's a Wonderful Life. So we have him cast as young Charlie's father, Joseph Newton. For the role of Charlie's two younger siblings, Roger and Anne, Roger Bates and Edna May Wanicott were cast. For a first-time performance, Wanicott, it can be safe to say, steals every scene she is in, playing the initial tropey, precocious child role with the cynical, never-trusting age beyond her year's gravity that is a far cry from the usual schmaltz, gee-whiz cringe that those types of roles usually offered. Wanicott was a native of Santa Rosa and was minding her own business waiting for her school bus when she was spotted by producer Jack Skirball and, in concert, Hitchcock. So one day you're waiting for the bus to take you to school. The next moment, immortality is Anne Newton, the greatest character in modern fiction. Okay, let me dial that down a bit. All fiction. Now for the sequences at the beginning of the film, the crew shot briefly in Newark, New Jersey, what is called the East Ward, the Down Neck area. Here was shot the poor neighborhood ensconcing the boarding house Uncle Charlie was lying low in before escaping to the West. The sequences of Santa Rosa, including the Newton family household, of course, were shot entirely on location. There were sets used in this film, but a lot of the film was shot on location. Now, as for the rest of the crew, Joseph Valentine, who had lent saboteur for Hitchcock the previous year, was chosen to DP for Shadow of a Doubt. Dimitri Tiomkin scored the film, and this was his first collaboration with the Master of Suspense. They would work together again for Strangers on a Train, I Confess, and Dial M for Murder. For the majority of the score, Tiomkin provides what I call abstract variations on Franz Lahar's The Merry Widow Waltz, and this is used to great effect in the final product. Robert Boyle, I have already mentioned, the caliber of his production design, his renderings of the Newton residence, his renovations of the actual house will grow ever more familiar to the audience as the movie progresses. 
Let's not forget how he takes the real-life environments, interior and exterior, of Santa Rosa and makes them breathe into the story world. When all is said and done, Shadow of the Doubt was released on January 12, 1943. It was met with unanimously positive reviews. Even Bosley Crowther, the go-to curmudgeon of film criticism at the time, heaped praises on the film. Today, it is still being hailed. While there is some contention whether Hitchcock believes it's his greatest film, it seems to be the case. Yes, in the Truffaut interview, he lets on that this is not the case, that he merely enjoyed the collaboration with Wilder, but admissions in later interviews of Hitchcock indicate that the answer is yes, Shadow of a Doubt was his favorite. It's now time for the segment of the show where I give you a plot summary of the film. So if you haven't seen the film and wish to avoid the inevitable onslaught of spoilers I'm about to unleash, I suggest you pause right now and watch the film. When you come back, you can enjoy my breakdown as a recap of sorts, and then we'll have some more exciting content waiting for you. All right, you have been warned. Let's go. Charles Oakley Spencer is on the run. From what? Well, we have an idea. It's a Hitchcock film after all. And so far, lying on his bed, smoking a cigar with the blinds down on a sunny day, Charles has not yet been portrayed in a sympathetic light. He walks out of his New Jersey boarding house right past the men whom are supposedly pursuing him and sends them on a merry chase, eluding them just enough to duck into a nearby watering hole to use a telephone. He's sending the telegram to his dear longtime no-see sister, Emma slash Emmy Newton. He is going to hop on a train and in a few days will grace them with his presence in the sleepy, peaceful Napa Valley town of Santa Rosa, California. He specifically singles out young Charlie, his niece and namesake. Speak of the devil and he will come. At the very same moment, a moment that is literally defined as telepathy in the narrative, Charlotte, or young Charlie, is lying on her own bed brooding. A high school graduate, she is clearly trying to ascertain what to do with the rest of her life, and is in the proverbial dumps. But she finally figures out how to fill that void she is experiencing, and she heads down to the telegraph office only to learn as she writes a message that the very man she is sending a telegram to has just sent a telegram of his own. She asks the telegraph clerk whether she believes in telepathy, and when she explains what she means to the clerk, the clerk doesn't get it. But we, the audience, do. A force of nature is coming to Santa Rosa, for good or ill, and Charlie yearns for that force, a roaring tempest, if need be. Be careful what you wish for, young Charlie. Charlie's father, Joseph, is a senior officer at the big bank downtown. Her mother, Emma, is hardworking in the domestic field, having to raise Charlie and her two precocious younger siblings, Anne and Roger. Roger is your typical talky young boy, and Anne is a shoot from the hip wise beyond her years bookworm. Save for his sister Emma, Charles is greeted at the platform by the Newton family. The Charlies reunite after all these years, and young Charlie is over the moon. Hope is restored to the black hole that was starting to fill up her life. Too bad young Charlie paid no attention to the blacker than black fumes approaching the train station on an otherwise sunny day, and how the shadows loom over the entire platform as the train comes to a halt. Charles performs some charm on his niece and nephew and his brother-in-law. When Emma greets him on the front lawn, it is conceivably a believable reunion, one in which Charles gets the upper hand in condescension, reminding Emma, in a sweet way, of the unmistakable loss of the good old days in St. Paul, Minnesota, and her fading beauty. All of this is brought to attention. Sleeping arrangements are handled. Young Charlie will share Anne's room, and Uncle Charlie will take her room. At dinner, Charles hands out gifts to his family. For young Charlie in particular, he has an emerald ring. She loves it, but notices the initials T.S. inscribed on the inside of the band. Charles pretends to be surprised and furious, not feigned, the fury, but Charlie views it as an old antique and wonders who could have possibly worn such a ring. While she's being very optimistic, we the audience side-eye the whole situation. 
Back at the dinner table, we meet Herb, the next door neighbor. He and Papa Joe Newton hold a murder mystery book club after dinner in the evenings. The original true crime fans. Meanwhile, Emmy Newton can't get an earworm out of her head. She hums some waltz or other, and the family tries to guess at it. Uncle Charlie firmly attests it's the Blue Danube, but young Charlie is about to say it's the Merry Widow, the reoccurring musical motif that Dmitry Tiomkin has thrown at us since the beginning of the film at the, end cred at the opening credits. But she doesn't actually say Merry Widow waltz out loud, because before doing so, Charles spills a glass of wine. After dinner, he tries to charm Roger and Anne by making a house out of newspaper. This has an ulterior motive. Both kids call him out that their father will not be happy about his paper being ripped up. Charles manages to rip out one segment of the paper for its purposes and stuffs it into his pocket of his suit jacket when young Charlie enters the room. Later that evening, young Charlie stops by his room to give him a glass of water and spots the newspaper sticking out of the jacket pocket now draping over a chair. Charles is quick and nearly violent in seizing her hand I was just playing, he says. If young Charlie hesitated, we barely saw it, but surely that weirded her out a bit, especially when her uncle describes the article as embarrassing news about a friend back home. But she goes to bed, still blissful about the change in circumstances in her life. Cut to Charles in bed, awake, puffing out dark smoke rings from his cigar. Charles can only sleep in so long when Emmy enters his room with breakfast in bed. She tells him that there will be guests arriving later in the afternoon. A national survey team of two men who came to the door the other day to ask to interview and take pictures of the Newton family and household as an exemplar of the typical American family. Charles admonishes her, adamant with both Emmy and young Charlie that he does not want to get his picture taken and can't believe that she was taken in by such a scam. Shortly after, the Charlies head downtown as Uncle Charlie has an appointment at Papa Joe's bank. Charles jokes about embezzlement and financial corruption to his brother-in-law's face whilst Joe introduces him to his boss the bank manager, Mr. Green. Mr. Green is visibly put back by Charles' cavalier and obnoxious attitude, but gladly takes the large amount of cash Charles is offering to deposit with the branch. Mrs. Green arrives with her friend, Mrs. Potter, a widow. Charles puts a charm on again, particularly with Mrs. Potter. When the Charlies return to the house, the survey group times it so they are entering the house at the exact same time, arriving one hour earlier than they were supposed to. Emmy is put off by this, but reluctantly starts the proceedings. The survey group is composed of two men, a younger man named Jack Graham and an older man named Fred Saunders. Charles takes his leave immediately and heads upstairs before anyone can speak to him. Graham is warm and affectionate with young Charlie despite her defending her uncle's right to privacy when Graham insists on interviewing him and taking a picture of the room, young Charlie's room. Reluctantly, young Charlie allows it and a no prize bet is won by Graham when it's confirmed that Charles is no longer in his guest room. Charles shows up a few minutes later through the side door on the second floor and Saunders snaps a picture of the hallway and Charles. Charles coldly demands the real and Saunders obliges. Not quite finished with the Newtons yet, Jack Graham convinces Emmy to let them come back tomorrow and asks her if he could borrow young Charlie for the evening on the pretense to show him about town. Young Charlie and Graham have a pleasant evening up until at a random park bench Graham reveals he is a detective and the survey was a cover for keeping tabs on her Uncle Charlie. They believe he and one of the other suspects is a dangerous man that they are looking for. Young Charlie is furious, betrayed, and astonished at the accusations being thrown at her beloved uncle. She is dropped off at the house, smugly letting Graham know that he will be proven wrong about Uncle Charlie. But a seed has been planted. On the walkway, out front, she runs into her father and Herb just returning from finishing another murder mystery meeting. He tells her Uncle Charlie is waiting for her. At that moment, she admits she is very tired and going to bed. 
She takes the stairway at the side of the house up to the door on the second floor, and knowing her uncle is downstairs, checks his jacket pocket for the mysterious article. It's not there. With a tip from Lil Sis Anne about the library's closing hours, she rushes downtown and nearly runs a crosswalk before, after an apology to the crossing guard, reaches the library. It is closed, but she convinces a quite vexed librarian to let her in for a few minutes. She seizes the previous day's paper and spreads it out on the reading table, flipping to the page where the article was torn from, and finds the article. Where is the Merry Widow murderer? Two men matching her uncle's description, suspected in the strangulation of three widows, are currently being pursued by the police, one in the East, another here in the West. Also, one of the widows was a musical comedy actress with the stage name of Thelma Shenley, T.S., of which she confirms upon examining the inner band of her ring once again. This confirms, or is leading to confirm, both what Graham told her and what Joe and Herb were discussing on the way back from Herb's house in the previous scene. Young Charlie takes the side door again and sleeps in very late the next day. Using the side stairs once again, she manages to elude her uncle, who has been asking for her. And she has decided to prepare dinner as pretense to giving her mother a break. At dinner, Emmy informs Charles that she has chosen him to speak at her women's club. Charles doesn't balk at the invitation, agreeing that the women of Santa Rosa are good women who care about their community. He contrasts them to city women, especially widows who use up their husbands' hard-earned fortunes with expensive meals and hotels. It is a misogynist speech delivered as if a monologue. Charles Oakley Spencer showing his true colors, mask off. Especially for young Charlie, Charles calls these women fat and useless. At this point, the cold shoulder he, she has been giving Uncle Charlie drops to a helpless rage when Charlie defends the widows in question as being human beings, to which Uncle Charlie responds, are they? And he looks right back at us in the audience. This tension should have been decreased with the arrival of Herb right on time for the murder mystery book club, but the Newtons are dining later than usual and Herb sits down at the table next to Joe and they begin discussing how to best murder each other as per usual. But this worsens the mood for young Charlie and she tears into them about the morbid subject matter they bring to the dinner table and storms out of the house. She walks firstly down the street all the way to downtown until her uncle catches up with her. He gently accosts her into a nearby bar, not a dive but somewhat shady with young soldiers and young women going to and fro in the cigarette smoke. Another hint of the Second World War is a thing. The two Charlies find a booth and face off against each other, but in a subtle fashion, Louise, one of Charlie's classmates, is working as a waitress and serves their table. Charles is trying to gauge how much his niece knows and whether he can trust her. He doesn't deny the accusations made against him though. All that Charlie feared and tried to avoid throughout the day is being confirmed. She returns the emerald ring. Charles strangles his napkin as he provides a defense not so much of his actions, but for that of his character, a noble man in an ignoble world. The two return to the house and young Charlie is utterly destroyed. The next day, or a few days after we assume, the Newtons attend church. As she is leaving with her two siblings and her friend Catherine, Jack Graham and Fred Saunders join their party as they walk home. Saunders reveals that he gave Charles an empty film stock and that he has sent the photograph to the police out east and is awaiting a wire to confirm that Uncle Charlie is their man. Graham and Saunders implore her to keep tabs on her uncle and possibly get him to leave town so they can easily capture him. Upon returning to the house, Charles is waiting on the front porch and Herb and Joseph are discussing the capture and death of the Mary Widow murderer. Because a suspect in the east was pursued to an airport where he had an unplanned rendezvous with an airplane propeller case closed. Of course, we know it's not, and young Charlie believes her uncle is the man they're looking for, but there is nothing that she can do. Jack Graham reaches out to her and they have a heart-to-heart -heart in her open garage about a possible romantic future, one that with a dark burden on her mind, 
young Charlie just can't commit to at the moment. As a young woman, how does she reach out to Jack Graham knowing her uncle is the real killer without compromising her family? So much insecurity and doubt and fear. About that fear, suddenly the garage door slams shut. Graham has to force the door open and stepping out of the garage, young Charlie sees her uncle at the end of the driveway. She says goodbye to Graham and she's open to him coming to see her again, but her uncle's shadow is looming over the proceedings. He reaches out to her, but she rebuffs, asking him for her mother's sake to leave as soon as he can. But Charles, publicly vindicated, sees no reason why he should do this. She doesn't go to the front door with him. She takes the stairwell at the left side of the house again. And again the next morning when she leaves to do some errands, but one of the steps gives away and she nearly falls through. It's a small injury than was probably expected, but she is shook. Uncle Charles is just around the corner, of course. When Charles confronts her after the near accident, she straight up tells him that she hates him and that if he doesn't leave, if he doesn't stay away from her mother, her family, she will kill him herself. Young Charlie has fundamentally changed since we first saw her lying on her bed at the beginning of the film. Charles takes his niece's threat to heart. On the evening of the big speech to the women's group, the Newtons are preparing to leave via taxi, but young Charlie, playing along until she can get rid of her uncle, wishes to journey to the event via her own car something that Uncle Charlie has anticipated. He has already started her car and removed the key, filling the closed garage with exhaust. As soon as Charlie opens the garage, she begins to choke and rushes to turn the car off, but the door is shut again from behind. Jammed shut, unable to be opened from the inside. Charlie falls against the door, pounding whilst the Newtons await the arrival of the taxi. Charles turns the radio up high and closes the window, prepared to leave the house at a moment's notice when the taxi arrives. But his plans are foiled by one of the true masters of how to commit a murder. Why, it's Herb, of course. He has heard the banging on the door and rushes into the Newton house to let them know. The door is forced open and young Charlie is pulled from the clutches of death by carbon monoxide poisoning. She is revived on the front lawn soon after and is adamant on not going to the event and wishes for everyone else to go, despite how much Uncle Charlie wants her to come. Uncle Charles has no choice but to leave young Charlie to her devices. He makes a speech that evening. But after being unable to track down Jack Graham on the phone, Charlie searches his room and finds Thelma Shenley's emerald ring in the nick of time. For the Newtons and all the important people of the town have arrived for a post-speech party. Uncle Charlie asks for her to attend his special toast to the town and she complies, descending the stairs like a queen, brandishing the emerald ring on her finger. Uncle Charlie switches gears while metaphorically driving uphill. He announces that he is leaving tomorrow. Coincidentally, the widow Mrs. Potter notes on the same train she is taking to San Francisco, also tomorrow. Emmy is devastated and makes an emotional plea in front of everyone how much light her brother brings into her life. Young Charlie keeps up appearances and joins the Newtons on the train platform as Uncle Charlie and the widow Potter board the train. Anne and Roger rushing to check out their uncle's train cabin, but big sister Charlie is there to shoo them away, making sure they are off the train before it leaves. This gives Charles a chance to be alone with her one last time. His speech is calming at first, trying to get to her emotionally, but she subtly resists until there is no more reason to be subtle. He delays just enough to grab her arm and the train begins to move. She struggles and he throws her into the threshold of the train's car door, throwing it open while covering her mouth as she resists him with all her might. He is waiting, waiting for the train to reach the right speed, waiting for the right moment, and when that moment arrives, he, not young Charlie, is pushed out the door onto the tracks and the path the instrument of what was to be her death, the oncoming train, the oncoming train that is now barreling towards him in the other direction as he falls, and so ends the career of the Merry Widow Killer. Santa Rosa mourns its adopted son. Citizens line the city streets to weep for the Newtons and the man who gave her that gave so much wealth to the community in his short time with them. 
While her family and the town populace attend Charles' funeral, young Charlie stands outside with Jack Graham, admitting to the audience despite all her effort to hate him, despite her words, she did not leave him a final say, a final victory. Instead, she pities the man who hated people, despite how much people loved him. So ends Shadow of a Doubt. So as promised, I said that I would have a special guest uh, on this episode of Lighting the Pipes Noir. And here's someone who needs no introduction, uh, my cohort in crime on the regular Lighting the Pipes podcast, my resident Hitchcock expert. Uh, This is Mr. Scott Powell. Hello, Scott. Hey, buddy. Thanks for having me on. Uh, You know, I'd I'd just like to say uh, the reason I'm on these shows with you isn't because it's convenient. At least I hope not. Um, Obviously, it is convenient and it doesn't say anything about your circle of friends, but it just so happens uh, coincidentally that I happen to know a lot about Hitchcock. I'm I'm not an expert. I know I'm I'm a resident expert, but I'm not an expert on Hitchcock. I've I've seen his movies. I've studied his and I teach his films as well. in, in more my than I do. work, but I, <laughs> yeah, but, um, no, I, I'm not an expert. There will be people out there who are experts. I'm an enthusiast and I know a lot about the man and I know a lot about the man's career, but I think that's probably where it, uh, it, it stops, but I'm, Hey, I'm delighted to be here, uh, and to talk to you and, uh, help contribute to your shadow of a doubt episode. Yeah. Cool. Good stuff. And it's nice because I, you know, we haven't, I have, we haven't been together on lighting the pipes in a little while. We're in the middle of our break before we uh, get back to a new season of reading. So this is really fun. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure, Scott. So I talked about in the, in, in the uh, history of uh, shadow of a doubt in the production history, I yep. talked about yep. Thornton Wilder. I talked about uh, Hitchcock's work with him. Uh, I talked about generally the idea of this film being, I, I suppose, very different from what you would normally expect from American cinema. And mm-hmm. there's, there's one thing I think that weird that I discussed with you previously, not, not on another show, but just, you know, just in between the two of us uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in regards to shadow of a doubt. And it was when I was sort of doing my binging in terms of reading up on noir theory and noir literature. And it was surprising to you that a lot of film historians, a lot of film critics do consider Shadow mm-hmm. of a Doubt a film noir. Now, yeah. yeah. Now I have introduced to you the idea of that, like while film noir in its early stages was basically adaptations of detective fiction. So it had those tropes that we also do consider with film noir. But sure. one, one yeah. of the big, uh, now Hammett and and Chandler, they're, they're one of the key participants of a lot of these early film noirs from the, from the 1940s. Now, one thing I have talked about is how 1945 and onwards is sort of the beginning of the true noir period where we're moving away from just adapting detective films and we're bringing in other authors, influential authors into the genre and we're doing darker Americana stories. And this of course begins with right. James, with James and Kane, double indemnity, the postman rings twice. Those novels that he wrote, uh, they kind of conveyed the idea of like noir doesn't necessarily have to be detectives in and secretary mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, uh mm-hmm. and it's more about you know like the darkness within the human character and our protagonists become morally flawed yet complex individuals and how like the darkness is taken into like the uh, into the suburbs like in double indemnity we have dietrichson and we have uh 
Walter Neff and, and that whole relationship and how that goes in the direction that it does. And so we're kind of introducing a new aspect to cinema goers at this time. And the reason why I think Shadow of a Doubt fits as a noir, in my opinion, and I guess in terms of mm-hmm. other him and film historians, is that it brings this darkness of noir uh, through the character, uh, through Joseph Cotton's character, uh, right into to, to the uh, sub into the American suburb. And so this okay. is sort of what, yeah. what historians build on is the idea of bringing this darkness into the suburbs. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. kind of where I'm building my stance and other film historians' stance is that this can be considered a film noir. Do you agree? Yeah, sure. But it, yeah, yeah. I, I see where you're going with that. And I do agree that, that there's some crossover there because that is a, that's a film noir thing, but that's also a very Alfred Hitchcock thing. Alfred Hitchcock was chiefly, chiefly interested in stories. Now, remember, Hitchcock was a voracious reader. Most of his ideas for films came from the things he read, screenplays, mm-hmm. not as many original screenplays as short stories and novels and such. Yes. But, um, Alfred Hitchcock was attracted to two, chiefly to two types of stories. One, when when the mundane or the banal would become immediately terrifying. And two, stories of the innocent man on the run. Okay, those were two stories which time, or the innocent person on the run, time and time again come back into Hitchcock's work. 39 so this steps, one, Shadow of a Doubt. Tour, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So Shadow of a Doubt fits really comfortably within the banal becoming something immediately terrifying, you know, the happy uncle returning from from his, uh, you know, his work and coming for a surprise visit actually brings great darkness into the family. And but but that that's as much a Hitchcock thing as it is a film noir thing. So I can see why film noir historians look at that broader picture that thematic picture of darkness entering a home darkness entering a soul a person a setting as being oh yeah well this is this is what's going on in this film but i would say to them yeah okay it is but this is also alfred hitchcock leaning into one of his two favorite themes for narrative which is just you know the mundane the everyday becoming something terrifying and mm. you know ever since hitchcock was a young boy and his father to teach him a lesson through him because he knew a policeman put him in a cell for like five, 10 minutes and left him there. <laughs> yeah. Teach him, this is what happens if you're badly behaved. That is something which Hitchcock himself in his interviews with Truffaut and others very popularly have said, even on like, you know, television interviews, he has always said that that is something that has remained with him and it terrified him as a young boy. That is a key theme in his work. You know, the everyday becoming terrifying. And that's, yes, it's, it's, it's certainly crossover with film noir and you can say more about that than I can, mm-hmm. but it's also a Hitchcock thing, yes. you know? So... I'm I'm willing to give and to budge a little bit on my belief that that fa- uh, the shadow of a doubt isn't it wasn't made as a film noir and I suppose that's why I'm that, that it's something that's been classified by historians and and film critics afterwards as a noir that's yes. fine but the film came out in 1943 if I, if I'm if I'm right uh, it followed and, sabotage, uh, saboteur yeah that's right but uh, it, it's a satire of American life as much as it is anything else you know the, hmm. the closed leafy towns and cities of America, which have not, like the European brothers and sisters, have not suffered the same casualties in war. Yes, soldiers have gone from the United States to fight in war, and there have been great casualties suffered, but not on the home soil. No. The towns have not been bombed. The villages have not been destroyed. And so America now in this post-war, or I should say nearing the post-war era, even though it's involved in the conflict overseas, its economy is still intact. It's growing. It's powerful. It's becoming this world leader now that has always been positioned to become. And so yes. Hitchcock comes in 
as this is one of his first American films, of course, he, he comes to America and he starts poking at this and he says, hey, you know what? You're not as safe as you think you are. And the whole allegory of, of the, the friend, the family man you think you knew, which, who, who's coming to have such a great time with you. This is, this is Hitchcock's message, historical message to look, things are going well now for you, America, but, you know, it's, it's coming. Bad darkness is there. It's in the world. We have suffered it. Don't be so naive. And I mean, I mean, the, the, the Newton family is a picture of naivety, right? Everyone but Charlotte, uh, young Charlie, knows nothing about what's going on. Anne is a very clever young girl, and there's some resource there. Yes. Hitchcock uses her as an interesting as an interesting tool. But uh, getting back to your original point, buddy, uh, before I, uh, I go off on somewhere somewhere <laughs> else, I, yeah, I think that Shadow of a Doubt definitely offers film noir uh, aficionados and film critics a lot to chew on. And yes. the way he uses canted angles and shadows and all of this stuff and camera angles and, and things. Yeah, it's definitely there. There's also vampiric themes that go throughout Shadow of a Doubt as well. Mm. You know, there's lots of darkness in the story. Yes. Uh, I do not think it's fair, though, to call it a film noir because it's... Uh, to me, that's not what Hitchcock's trying to do. If if it happens to wear the costume of a film noir, and if people are happy to call it that, sure, I'm happy to call it that if, yeah. if, if you want me to. But I don't think, first and foremost, this is a film noir. I think it's a, I think it's a thriller uh, and a satire, which, which uh, draws on noir-esque features. But it is, remember, it is still kind of early for a noir. Yes. And I don't think that language, that term, as you've already said, that term is not in the, is not in the parlance, the common no. parlance, really, at Nino, this time. So, yeah, Nino yeah. Frank didn't say it until like 1945, right? It 46 after, or 45 46. or something, yeah. It so. was after the war when you see all of like these French, young French film critics yeah. start seeing all these American films, right? So, uh, because they're finally yeah. so coming retcon, in. So, retcon, reclass, whatever. You want a- to do that with Shadow of a Doubt? Absolutely. No problem. I, I just think Hitchcock is playing with things for his own thematic purposes, and those yes. happen to share some tenants with film noir so exactly that's where i sit on it that's that, that's a very fair fair uh assessment of that situation i think i think as historians and and whatnot you know they want to peg certain things in certain holes and they want to also categorize things so that it, it fits a certain narrative so that we can study it and we can you know study movements and time and cultural movements at the time because if you think about it so in 43 you have hitchcock's yeah, Shadow of a Doubt. It's the same year as well, like where you get um, uh, Billy Wilder's Double Indemnity. Uh, we've already had the Maltese Falcon. We've already had uh, this gun for hire. So we're we're very much like in the early stages of the film noir period. But as I said, we're still adopting Con. We're still adopting Hammett. We're still adopting Chandler. Now someone got into uh, James and Kane, and. It just so happens that the same kind of themes those authors use that, the, that these filmmakers are using as of now, this trend that they're, totally. de- they're developing, Hitchcock mm-hmm. was just already in that mindset before he was already in that mindset. And I think it just worked to his advantage that this film, that he was able to, you know, make this film the way that he wanted to, because that's right. Yeah. Cause right now, like the whole, like, like Breen and, you know, the, uh, Breen and Joseph Breen and his cronies at the Hayes, at the Hayes office. Yeah. They mm-hmm. They were monitoring the films in this sense, but because I think they gave some leeway because they knew that like in Hollywood, the noir thing was sort of catching on, whatever they called it back then anyways, this sort of trend of detective fiction, crime fiction was catching on now in American Mm -hmm. cinema. It was, it was getting kind of, it was growing a bit of, you know, of a, of a cult personality that 
they were able to let Hitchcock do his thing when he came over to do this film. So that, that, that and that's you know, Josh, like just, just, just to add on to what you're saying too, like, you know, we have, we, we have a tendency to on perhaps on the show, I, I think we kind of steer away from it, labeling and all that kind of stuff, but we do have a tendency when we think of things in terms of historic evolutional or evol- history or evolutionary kind of trends we have a tendency to want to label and place and all of this but the truth is like everything on a continuum right art culture cinema it, it all operates on a on a continuum hitchcock of course got so much of his his uh, influence from the german impressionist filmmakers as you know he started uh in in the british film industry doing the talkies right so i yep. mean he he was drawn very strongly to the image and he's a visual storyteller because he he didn't have dialogue uh, you know the way uh, the way the, the later films had so he started out recognizing the power and the strength of visual storytelling and if if something from this world or that world comes into you, I mean, it's all on a continuum. So I, I don't think we need to say this is a film noir, this isn't a film noir. I think we can live in this happy in-between place where yes. Hitchcock influenced film noir, Shadow of a Doubt, by retcon standards, can be thrown into the, the mix of the early 40s film noirs if you want to. But it's also a family film. It's also a comedy. Like, yes. it's there's a lot of stuff going on here in this movie. Yes. Um, so One classification yeah, let, just, just seems like it's, it's, it's not enough to yeah. To encompass what this film brings, I suppose you could say. That's right. Uh, yeah. But for the purposes of like fit for this series for our Laying the Pipe uh, Noir, absolutely. Uh, it slides right in there easily. And sure. I think it's worth talking okay. about no matter what. And, and it kind of brings up this kind it of discussion is. of what is film noir and whatnot. And it yeah. opens it, it opens up that divide. Okay. So in particular, like I know we you know, you got me into Hitchcock, like, you know, it's and and Outside of you know what I saw in film studies classes, like you, you've got me into Hitchcock in the past couple of years, and I really appreciate that. So thank you. But Most welcome. In this respect, though, I've seen a lot of Hitchcock films lately, you know, and some that just blew me away on how great they were. But this particular uh-huh. film, like you always told me before I saw it, that this was your favorite Hitchcock film, and I kind of just want to know why it's your favorite Hitchcock film. Like, what doesn't Vertigo have? that this film does uh-huh. what doesn't mm-hmm. rear window have that this does or what does psycho lack you know compared to this film that's kind of what i'm looking at and, and, well, and, yeah yeah i mean if, i enjoy watching this film um and teaching this film and talking about this film to no end really i think it is it's a perfect motion picture it's, it's a high concept film insofar as it's easy to understand right it's low concept in terms of the filmmaking mm-hmm. and in terms of how the story comes to life and of all the little things you can go back and f- and find, you know, the, I think the screenplay is, is just outstanding. I think the, the visual things within this film are, are, are remarkable. Y- you asked me, what do the other films lack? Well, I'm, I'm currently working with a class through rear window, which is another one of my favorite Hitchcock films. What me do too. I think it lacks? Uh, I can only talk to and cite, that 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 aesthetic thing that we always come back to about yeah. why you like a certain thing. Like I watched this film for the first time, not knowing anything about it, but having picked it up, uh, I think it was HMV up in Glasgow. I might have been in Glasgow when I first moved here. Pick up a bunch of yeah. In fact, that's what it was. I used to go to HMV and get the DVDs. They had the the Hitchcock series uh, over here. Um, I know that listeners can't see this, but um, I've got a couple of the discs here. You can see that particular 
uh, universal release with yes. just a special feature documentary. Uh, there were a lot of them in this, and I I was going like through one of those bins. Things. Well, not not one, not bins. I mean, they're properly good with like right. special features and stuff on them. But it was this style and this series that I wanted to collect. Right, um, cool. the universal. Uh, what are they? Kind of white, you know, with with black. Yeah, uh, I used to have the DVD. Line. Yeah, they have like that. What, there's like the single color ones. I remember because yeah, I, the 2005, 2005 releases. Anyway, I was collecting them. I was collecting them when I moved here to Scotland to start teaching. I'd never seen Shadow of a Doubt, uh, but I picked it up and I watched it, and I was immediately struck by, by just how how careful it was and how interesting and kind of welcoming it was you know all the open windows that you see i remember at the start of the film you know the 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 juxtaposition between uh uncle charlie lying closed on his bed and young charlie open with her arms behind her head Mm. i knew there was something going on the telepathy pictures were telling me stories and and yeah that theme of telepathy i was drawn into it and then when i got the other thing, the, the, the characters in the family, the, the town and the menace that was coming into the town, you know, everything really, really touched for me. And I loved, I loved the, the, the simple setting, you know, that kind of leafy Santa Rosa setting, which yeah. was so open and vulnerable and ready for an attack from something. I, I felt like it was a very human film because this is a real threat. Like you never know what's going on next door you don't know who's there you don't know really the truth of what your neighbors are up to or whatnot and so the whole you know the idea of of the neighbor who keeps coming in all the time at dinner it's a uh, a breeding ground of vulnerability and, and comfort you know i was aware when i watched it the first time that there was something allegorical going on and yet also something very personal very family um although her character was exaggerated and hyperbolic to the nth degree. I felt like Patricia Collins's performance was just yes. outstanding, you know, and really, really underappreciated, maybe long term. Like, I think everybody, the whole cast was just clicking. Yes. The setting worked, and Joseph Cotton as a villain was so so interesting to me i really liked his performance i didn't know anything about his deeper work but i think having seen a lot more joseph joseph cotton now i i just haven't seen him in a better role than this i i think it was such a a great cast a great story that you could follow and this perfect representation of the everyday banal secure becoming something frightening and unbelievable that you had to work through and then of course the camera work in the film is is outstanding. I mean, I just keep coming back to it. Why do why is this my favorite Hitchcock film? I I saw it and immediately liked it, and saw so many opportunities as a teacher as well to share a great story, to share history. You've got a British filmmaker as well coming to America and making this film, which is like it's not so much a slap in the face to the society, but it's definitely like a warning. It's definitely a poking fun at just how, you know, just how confident they all seem and how comfortable, like the mom, right? Patricia Collins character. She's so naive when she talks about Joseph Cotton. Oh, you know, he, he's just in business the way men are in business. Like, well, there's no, there's, there's no questioning what a man does. A man goes to work and he's just in business. Well, you don't know what he's doing. He's, he's giving your daughter a ring off one of his victims. You know what I mean? Like, and I guess that points to my other thing. So much of the menace in the film is is cloistered, you know? It, it, it's comforted by the family dynamic. It's hidden by 
the um, the charm and the smarm of Uncle Charlie and, and the disbelief that anybody could ever do these things, first of all, but then want to bring them into a family. Like it's, um, and it's also a great hero story. You know, it, it, it's a, it's a bildungsroman in the sense that young Charlie starts very frustrated. She has a dilemma. She wants like someone to come shake her out of her, her doldrums. And then at the end, she has a real dilemma. She understands the world is not made up of good and bad, but instead is full of people who chance their luck. And that last shot in the film is just, it's just perfect. You know, she and Graham are standing on the steps of the church inside. They're having this incredible service, this, this service for the great man of the city, Charles Oakley, who came and in his short time did so much for Santa Rosa. And outside, there's the future. And if you notice that last scene, Hitchcock's got the characters stuck right in the middle. There's the darkness of the church, which is what everybody thinks, and there's the future between the two characters. They're the only ones that have the truth, because if Charlie were to tell the truth of what happened, then her mum would surely not... You know, I mean, that's... that. Yeah, that's the dilemma of the film, isn't it, right? Like, she can't tell her mom the truth and get the police in here because if she does, the truth will kill her mom. And so it's a personal journey. It's a family story. And there's just so much in there to like. Rear Window, Vertigo, Psycho, you know, these these are the big big ones. And they are fantastic films. I love them equally. But this has just got a a small edge on them because I like where... um, I like where Hitchcock has come in and, and just tried to make a political statement out of this mm. picture as well. You know, of course he does that with Rear Window too, right? With, with the McCarthyism and all that stuff. But yeah, I, I'm not answering your question. No. I'm just kind of pontificating and, and praising the movie. But it, yeah, that's why I like it so much. It's uh, it's always been my favorite. And um, I just think it's so rewatchable. You get a lot in your 90 minutes or your, you know, hour and 45 Fair minutes. Fair enough. Yeah, I couldn't say it better myself. Uh, let's talk about Thornton Wilder. Now, I myself, I never, I never read Our Town. Okay. So yeah. you told me earlier mm-hmm. that you have read it. So mm-hmm. Hitchcock mm-hmm. says in the Truffaut interview that working with Wilder was like one of his greatest experiences as as, as like a director. And he just, I, I and um, mm-hmm. do you have anything to say about that? Like, can you imagine while Wilder was such a good fit for Hitchcock? I think he was yeah, a good fit okay. for this film. Yeah, I think it was a good fit for this film. I'm not sure that Hitchcock would have said the same thing if he had been, instead of uh, um, Bloch, you know, writing Psycho, for example, or Stefano, sorry, Stefano, right? Stefano wrote Psycho. I don't think he would have, he would have, he would have thought necessarily there. But for for the story that Hitchcock was trying to tell about the American town and the threats that lurk outside of that and the society that's naive to that, I think Thornton Walder was a perfect fit because I think he he was able to give Hitchcock some of these themes that with an Americanism, with a, a cultural touch that Hitchcock was still he was foreign learning. to. He was still a little unable to maybe, yeah, yeah. He needed that screenplay written by that American talent, you know, so that the, the deafness of it would come out. Good point. Now, you are very knowledgeable when it comes to music and particularly uh instrumental music as you've played some yourself and you're you're more than familiar with the classical composers but one thing that we kind of bonded together on was uh film scoring and you know we all love the maestro john williams of course uh and uh but one of the great film film uh early film composers was uh dimitri tiomkin and of course this was actually his uh first Mm -hmm. work with alfred hitchcock and he would do other films afterwards with um hitchcock but how does mm-hmm. Dmitry Tiomkin's score 
serve the storytelling? And as a little bit of a add-on, how does it serve kind of like the dark Americana, the noir aesthetic? Okay, well, that's a that's a, that's a good question. I mean, you've got um, you you've got a lot going on here because the, the Merry Widow yes. Waltz, of course, which is like Uncle Charlie's theme as such, that's used both diegetically and non-diegetically in the story. Uh, the, the the theme was written by um, is it an Austrian composer, Le- Franz Lehár? I think it's Lehár. Yeah, sweet. I, I, Lehar. Yeah, Lehár. Uh, I don't know if he was Austrian. I think he is, but um, Tiomkin takes that under Hitchcock's auspices. But remember, Hitchcock is not like a, he, he wasn't a spotting director. He didn't sit down and watch, you know, the film. And he might've given the composer ideas of here's what I want here, here's what I want there. But he wasn't like, you know, you think of the great collaboration between Spielberg and, and Williams, or, you know, they didn't sit down and pick out every moment where the music would do this, 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 and this. But there would have been suggestions. I mean, John Williams, for example, famously reports and uh, talks about his time with Hitchcock and, um, kind of Hitchcock would say some things and go away and come back. And that was it. The score was done. They had a few lunches. They had a few discussions about the feeling and what scenes. It was very typical for Hollywood yeah, at the time. But yeah. I, I think, yeah, totally. And I think that uh, Tiomkin's music using the Mary Widow Waltz to characterize moments, right? Like at the very beginning, I think we see it, don't we? In the uh, opening credits, it's used as part of the, uh, the credit roll. And then when Uncle Charlie is looking through the detectives in Philadelphia down from his guest house, he looks down and he says, you know, you've got nothing on me. And then you hear Tiomkin playing the music of the Merry Widow Waltz, which is, of course, the auditory cue to the audience that, oh, there's something connected with this guy. He's connected to this tune somehow. And um, and then you get your and you get your uh, your non-diegetic music, right, which kind of works in step. I really like that moment, actually, where Charlie does get out of the guest house and he challenges he challenges the uh, the detectives and he walks because when he starts to walk, you get that kind of swirling, rousing drama music. And then he passes them and they turn. And it's a great shot because as Uncle Charlie walks away, the two detectives start bump, 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 you know, walking towards him. We see the back. We see them shot from behind and their steps are in time with the timpani, you know, so there's some really good spotting going on there. But that whole scene of his escape in the early stages of the film, musically, is, is quite fun. And Tiomkin tells the story with that humor, too, because when Charlie manages to get them up at the top, he, he, you know, it's a great, it's kind of like a rear window shot, actually. We, we You've got this lower right pan up to the left with a little tilt, and you see Uncle Charlie's actually looking from above down. It's like, and you're wondering, how did he get up there? And the clarinet does a little trill, and it's kind of like he's na-na laughing at him, you know? So you've got some good stuff with the music throughout. I think Tiomkin does a good job. Um, music's very important to this story, but I don't think the, the, the orchestral score by Tiomkin is anything yes. more than serviceable. It's serviceable, and it's good, but it's the, it, it's the... I think the real skill in it is how he incorporates the theme to tell the story of the Merry yeah, Widow, one- you know? Mary it's one murderer. part of the yeah. machine. Like it's, as you said, it's, it's, it's more, it's, That's it, right. it's more, yeah. the, it's just slightly more than serviceable. It works for the film, but there are far greater uh-huh. things going on uh-huh. in this movie than the score. I mean, some you could argue with, uh, with other films is that the score yeah. saves some films and, and brings it, brings moments up. But really mm-hmm. it's, it's just a, it's just sort of like a, it's not even a backbone. It's just, you know, it's, it's, it's playing its part in the overall, overall orchestra of the symphony right. that, yeah. I guess that's the metaphor I'm using that Hitchcock is uh, 
composing with this mm-hmm. film. Yeah, but I figured yeah. as, a, as a film score buff, you know, that's something that I, w- I was interested in getting your mind on what the film score was. And, you know, that can kind of help flesh mm-hmm. out, you know, in terms of the grading for the atmosphere uh, for this particular movie. Mm-hmm. I, I do like the score. I mean, just uh, as, to punctuate it, I like the score, but it's it's a serviceable score, very standard in what you would have expected from a thriller at the time. You know, you get your light, airy music when we enter yes. Santa Rosa. You get your dark, brooding music when you're following. I mean, it is, it's character-driven. The score is character-driven. There's not a lot of motifs or lay motifs you're going to take away whistling except for the theme of the waltz which is so important to the character and that's where Tiomkin earns his money is in integrating the score quite cleverly into different parts of the movie under and alongside Hitchcock's instructions I'm sure you mentioned uh, Patricia Collins's uh, wonderful performance uh, mm-hmm. in, in, as the mother in, in the film and yeah she was fantastic uh, the, the even the young actress that plays Anne is for a young child actress, she is very, very good. Uh, but in terms of, like, we're going to talk about our two our protagonists and our antagonists. So we have young Charlie, and then we have uh, Charles Oakley. In terms of performances, mm-hmm. do you think there was an equality to their performances, to their chemistry? Yeah, I thought they had great chemistry. Believable um, in in the, the kind of uncle-niece, you know, uh, element of that thing yeah i think that was definitely believable um i think they both held the screen well and they did what they had to do effectively i think that there was probably a bit more range with joseph cotton because he was required to be more than just yeah yeah bad you know Uh, so i think it demanded a little bit more of him but he was very comfortable doing it uh however having said that i think that uh, charlie holds her own young charlie holds her own in the scenes with him. So yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm all about Teresa Wright here. I'm, I think there was, it's just wonderfully cast right down to the barmaid, you know, like who, who gives them their drinks at the till two club, like yeah, everybody in uh, the film. Louise, I think her good. name was right. It seems like Louise was just one of the, was one of this wonderful, like I found that she was a wonderful addition to the storytelling because we have Charlie, you know, who's like the, she's probably like the smart, she, she said she's head of a high school with good grades. She's probably going to college soon. You know, like she has a good future ahead of her, despite her mm-hmm. being in the doldrums. But at the same time, and you see her friend, like Catherine, who seems kind of a, a little bit of like a, she has a haughty, haughtiness to her, her friend, but, uh, mm-hmm. but and also oh, yeah, kind of totally, like a yeah. gossip monger type, you know, like she just kind of, kind of, kind of seems that way. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but then of course you have Louise, who I just feel is like, she was kind of like the girl in high school who maybe, you know, didn't have good grades and probably came from the other side of the town. And, you know, there's probably stories about her and the boys, you know, like, I don't like, I don't, I don't like going into those stereotypes mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and descriptions, mm-hmm. but you get, but I just found I that she saying. was a very yeah. believable addition to, uh, to the story. And that's why I think the screenplay is so strong is that every character stands out in this film. You have the crossing guard, the, co- the, the crossing cop, like he, <laughs> yeah, he was great. Comes back like, in, he, yeah. like he, he would, he, yeah. he fully functioned yeah. in the narrative. And then you kind of have that yeah. meta narrative sort of thing where you have, Henry Travers and Hugh Cronin and their murder club. Oh, yeah. that's massive in the story. That's massive in the story. And that, that, that service is yeah. Hitchcock satire, right? Like these two guys think they they're so clever because they've like us, they they've read all the Sherlock Holmes stories and, <laughs> and they're doing, yeah, exactly. And they're talking about murders and like, what's the best way to kill someone. And they can't even sniff out the fact that sitting at that table is, is, a, is a murderer, you know, like that's, it, it's ironic and it's meant to be humorous and darkly comic, but it's also yes. satirical, right? 
it's it's all these you know would be experts who are ignoring the threats. You got to admit, like uh, the mother Patricia Collins, like she says, like oh, this is men's mm-hmm. business. Men do things, and you, you see uh, right. Travers yeah. and yeah. Cronin talking, Mister yeah. Newton and Herb. Is it yeah, Herb talking? And uh, Herb, yeah, yeah. and he says, oh, that's mm-hmm. my brother-in-law from New- from 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 New York. You know, he's in some kind of business. He's doing well. Doesn't even question it. Like you don't. Not even the males question mm-hmm. it. Like you, they might get some. Like the bank manager has a bit of kind of a raised eyebrow at Charles at the bank. You know, when and Charles put on this like indifferent bravado to everything, right? To to make him like seem different to everything, and that for some reason draws people to him because he. Yeah. Well, I mean, yes and no. Like, I, I, I agree with what you're saying that the bank manager definitely doesn't take kindly to him at first. But you think about that opening scene. Like, I'm not so sure he's putting it on because Charles Oakley is not motivated by money. He's motivated by his hatred for women. He's a misogynist, and he he isn't. Th- these are not sexual, lustful, or money money motivated crimes like that opening scene where we creep into his window and you see him lying on the bed the camera immediately goes to the side table with the bundle of cash it looks down on the same shot it just tilts down and you see the money on the floor and then you see the woman come into the guest house and say oh my you know you shouldn't be so careless with your money you can't trust everybody you see you know and then he goes to the bank and he throws the money around how does 30,000 sound you know like he doesn't care about money he's not motivated by it he doesn't put it on as a front that's the truth He's not motivated by money, whereas everybody else around him is. Money is security. Money is future. And so when he goes to the bank and he gets the bank manager, like he starts joking about embezzlement and all that sort of stuff. Of course, the bank manager is not particularly happy with him and he's not interested with him, but he's keen to take his money. So I'm not sure it's a front. I think it's a character point with Uncle Charlie. He's not kind of pretending like he doesn't care about money. He doesn't care about money. He's a misogynist murderer who hates women who take advantage of their men after they die. You know, that's he targets women who he doesn't think are worthwhile as human beings. He calls them pigs. He calls them, you know, animals, beasts. Yeah. You know, he's it's really, really some gruesome stuff. Like, And that's the other reason I like the film because um, it does have, it does go there and it goes to the sickness of the human condition as much as it tries to and ultimately does uphold, I guess, the brightness of, mm-hmm. of victory, you know, among the good. It's, uh, yeah, one but anyway, the, sorry. One of the readings on? uh, that I, I did on this on this film talked about mm-hmm. how it's that scene where he does his whole rant on like the, the, the pig rant, as I call it. Uh, we all live in the world. The world is a, the world yeah, is yeah. a sty. Uh-huh. Know, that whole rant that he does at the table. And he goes like, uh, which, well, uh, well, he has two, right? He's got the profile one he does where his sister asks him what he's going to talk yeah, about at the, the dinner. It's the profile rant the one. because we know at this point that Charlie is uh, is is very well yeah. aware of him mm-hmm. and she's she's the one that's avoiding him and she's but she's still serving the dinner and she has to deal with him. And then she and he has this great mm-hmm. and she has that response you going like, "Well, aren't they humans or are they aren't they feeling human beings?" and and he's like, "Are they?" But he, he looks like mm-hmm. right at the camera, like he's he, he's addressing. Are they, the, Charlie? He's addressing the audience, yeah. and oh, that, yeah. that, that that is an uncomfortable position because he's putting the audi- he's putting the audience totally. In, yeah, it's not cutting back to her reaction. It's just him addressing the audience. It's like, are, is the filmmaker mm-hmm. agreeing with the character, yeah. or is mm-hmm. he basically what he's doing is is he's like That's right? Yeah, he's <laughs> drawing us into like is he's trying to put us on the same grounds. Like it, it's a very uncomfortable place to. Well, that's to, right. To, totally. It's a very uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, trick that he plays on the audience but it works very well uh, so yeah 
And if, and if you notice, Josh, all of those table scenes, Hitchcock shoots them from a medium angle on the level as if we're sitting at the table with the family. And some of them are just classic yes. eyeline matches, like first-person narrative camera work where you're looking at the reaction of Charlie. But when he turns and he looks at her and he says, are they, are they Charlie or are they fat, yeah. bloated animals or whatever it is he says, right? Like... Um, when he looks, he's looking at us. Yeah, absolutely. And then, then we get the change of perspective, right? We get the change of perspective uh, shortly after that, where in a following scene when Herb comes in, and I mean, even that huge moment that 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 precipitates the fallout, really, where he confronts her, like she stands up from the table because Herb comes in and talks about sinking him under a bathtub, or Joseph says, "I'm gonna." That's the best way to do it. It's been done before, but it's the best way to do it. She stands up. Um, this is after she knows the truth, right, of Uncle Charlie. She stands up and she goes, why do you, isn't there something else you can do? Why do you always have to talk about killing each other? <laughs> and and her dad her dad says, her dad says, um, uh, I wasn't, I wasn't. I'm talking about killing Herb and Herb's talking about killing me. And then Patricia Collins' character, she says, it's it's the way your father relaxes, right? <laughs> and, and, and then she gets up and she goes, well, can't you find some other way to relax? And that that moment where she breaks off from the table, that's a high angle shot looking down. Charlie's isolated. She's the single figure standing up around the table. We get a full view of the table. And then she walks out the door. The camera doesn't cut, but instead it slides down and it zooms in on Uncle Charlie. And Uncle Charlie gets up when Joseph says, or when uh, uh, Mom Emma says, oh, you know, Roger, go get her. He says, no, I'll get her. And that precipitates, obviously, their confrontation in the club. But... Yeah, that 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 scene is um, yeah. that scene's great. Yeah, the camera work there is great too, and Hitchcock does great stuff with the dinner Did table you? in the film. Like he likes he likes setting things around mundane scenarios. Again, it's the dinner. What could be more mundane than your Sunday roast in America? You know what I mean? Like everybody's there, and the neighbor, the nosy neighbor, comes in, and you got the visiting <laughs> uncle. Like it's it's also mundane, but it's terrifying. I love how like there's certain like like uh, seeds that Hitchcock plants too. Like the whole thing with Herb Herb coming in at the you know around the same mm-hmm. time every day, mm-hmm. and then even mentioning that dinner scene or, or or in that regard, saying, "Oh, you guys are having." dinner late or something like that and he himself is subconsciously yeah, noticing yeah. a change in the family i guess because uncle charlie is accommodating these changes right and then yeah, of course this yeah. sets up the whole thing where he actually ends up saving charlie's life because he shows up at that time and and he he's the That's one right. that yeah. re, that notices you know that someone's locked in the garage right yeah so totally and i love that too like the irony of the goofball neighbor being the one who actually you know, stops Uncle Charlie from Prevents doing what murder. he wants to do. <laughs> Prevents a murder, yeah, and he's not even aware of it. Like it, and the the whole absentee minded of it, like or the absenteeism of it. So we gone over, you know, the score. We talked about Thornton Wilder. Uh, we talked about, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. we talked about some of our favorite performances, you know, in the movie. I was just just in terms of you know just of signing out on this particular convo. Uh, let's talk about you know just. What would you say is your favorite scene or moment in this film? The one that stands out the most for you? Uh, the one that stand, uh, stands out the most for me. Um, I really like the scene where the family goes to church. I, I like the whole way that ends, you know. Anne comes out and she's oh, talking. Graham and, and uh, right. Graham, Detective Graham and, and Saunders are there and they're trying to get they're trying to get some attention about blah, 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 whatever. And they walk home and then it's Uncle Charlie and Charlie together. And Charlie kind of watches her uncle go up the stairs and he turns around and he looks back at her and you see her there down from a high angle shot looking down. There's no dialogue. It's just the two of them 
looking at each other. She's below, vulnerable, with her Sunday dress on, holding her hat. And there's that big shadow that is cast in front of her, stretching into the house, suggesting that kind of threatening that she's got power that could be creeping on towards him. And then you got the reverse shot of him up at the top, holding onto the banister, looking down with the kind of slants of light behind his head. He's quite concerned and uncertain. They're, they're, they're reading each other. These are two great mm-hmm. opponents reading each other now because one knows the other and the other knows that the other knows. And so you've got this whole, how's it going to play yeah. out? You know what I mean? Um, I really like that shot, that, that scene, you know, but I think, uh, I think the other thing I, I would say that makes it such a, a great exercise in, in film study is the scene between the two characters, um, how it's edited, how it's shot at, at the pub, at the bar, rather, at the, you know, the Till 2 Club, the, the, the eyeline yes, matching. the eyeline matching. And um, the moment where uh, Uncle Charlie has the, yes. the napkin and he's twisting the napkin just casually. She looks at it. He draws it underneath the table. There's, there's no identification of it. Like she doesn't call him on it except for her expression. The way that film, the way that scene is directed is masterful, you know, because Uncle Charlie is, he's there. He, he's exposed. He, you know, he's the Mary Widow murderer. He's strangling yes. the napkin with his hands. That's what he does. And then you think about all the other moments where there's really like he grabs her hand at the beginning and at the end, you know, she thinks about the hand again. And I just think that scene is a real standout scene, but I also love some of the family moments too, you know, like, uh, the, the whole movie works well, man. Like it's tough for me. It's tough for me to pick a favorite scene because I think the movie is, is just spectacular. It's entertaining. It's dark. If you like dark, it's funny. If you like funny, it's naive. If you like naive, it's a great Hitchcock offering because it's got the humor, the thrilling kind of adventurous stuff, the the character strength and the, the transformation from innocent to educated, but the educated wishes that she could be innocent again, you know, because now she's got a new dilemma, which is how to move forward in a life where she understands good and bad is not like it is in the storybooks. You know, it's a, it's a really complex and uh, strong film. Yeah. So I'm, I'm all for it. I'm all for it. Anyway, it was, it was, it was fun to, to come on. I know I've only here for a few yeah. minutes, but it was nice to at least contribute some ideas to it. We, we, yeah. I know how much you love this movie. I know how much you love Hitchcock. <laughs> I wanted to get your points, you know, on the contentiousness of it being a noir. Uh, I think we covered that pretty well. Uh, and, yep. and I think yep. we kind of discussed the film outside of just like the history that I presented and also like the, the summary. Yeah. I, kinda, I think we sure. kind of brought it, we kind of made things a little more colorful, I think, by just getting your perspective on it and talking about moments in a, in a sort of a, not a random fashion, but in a way that I think kind of like just gives us highlights of what the film is all about in terms of uh, of, of enjoyment as yeah. well as in terms of of, of uh, the caliber of its filmmaking. So thank you, uh, Scott, for coming on. And uh, I know this was probably no sweat for you to do anyways. I'm happy to talk Hitchcock, and and I, I like these uh, these little pocket episodes you got going with uh, our, our main show. It's really fun to, to kind of take a break from our reads and do these uh, these noirs. So I hope I hope you keep doing them because mm-hmm. they're a lot of fun, and uh, I know people like listening to them. So it's uh, it's cool. But yeah, I'll see you back on Light in the Pipes uh, very soon. A lot has been said on Shadow of a Doubt, so I'm I'm just going to conclude this episode with my review. As always, my reviews are composed of three criteria. Story, 
acting, and atmosphere. Each are rated out of five, making a total of 15 points. Now, a story we're dealing with the strength of the narrative, the writing, the pacing, and how the characters are utilized with those elements. Okay, then. So Thornton Wilder and Hitchcock make a crack duo. No doubt about it. Hitchcock was brilliant to nab Wilder. This gave the story exactly what Hitchcock intended to make us believe this story was real. This is a small town, and this is how people in small town America act, behave, and it adds tension when you put a character like Uncle Charlie in those environs. Every character had the right amount of lines. Everything said felt sincere and unforced, from the main players to the glorified extras that populated the town. The story flowed beautifully, each scene connected with the previous, the editing in terms of contrasting between characters or paralleling in match on action. Think, for example, of Uncle Charlie lying on his bed, contrasted with young Charlie lying on her bed. Talk about telepathy between the two characters, protagonist and antagonist. The editing and script and cinematography expertly and subtly told the story. We are given time how to feel about the big moments in which it doesn't feel forced because we're invested intellectually and emotionally with the proceedings from the get-go with because of the expert visual cinematic language Hitchcock has presented to us. I provided examples of this in the summary and in the discussion with Scott, so let's just say five out of five for the story. It's dramatically, emotionally, and thematically sound. Next category, acting. Five out of five. Wright and Cotton have tectonic chemistry. Wright's range in showing affection and love for her uncle convincingly transforms first to incredulity, denial, disillusion, anger, to pure hatred, and deep down is able to come back down to pure pity. Wright won an Academy Award for her previous role, and it shows why. I would argue that Wright took the trope of the good daughter, someone very wholesome, and delivered the multifaceted humanity behind that role in society that she is playing. A fully realized young adult with all the fears and insecurities and hopefulness who undergoes a psychological and emotional journey into cynicism and how dark the real world can be. Joseph Cotton carried a strong, handsome, avuncular figure who we can understand why his sister and his niece revered him so much, and yet Cotton provided the, the facade of confidence and nobility while revealing through subtle hints of psychopathy until they were no longer subtle. Cotton allows us to somewhat like or at least be intrigued by Uncle Charlie, and then with the flick of a switch, now that we and young Charlie know what he is, he removes the mask and reveals a monster within. And this is done with terrifying eloquence and fearlessness, minus any shame, only pure conviction in Cotton's performance. People talk about Patricia Collins as Emmy, his poor sister, and rightfully so. While Wright and Cotton are the humanized forces of good and evil in this film, Collins is the emotional heart of the film. It is because of her performance even more so than the writing that we understand why young Charlie does not want to expose her uncle as the monster that he is, why she is so conflicted. So we buy that premise thanks to Collins' vulnerable, powerful performance. Props to Henry Travers as Joe Newton, who feels real as young Charlie's father, living his life, but also wielding a subtle comic relief that, again, does not feel forced. Hume Cronin, again, as his partner in Not Real Crime, also good. Edna Mae Wanicott, a first-time actor, is eminently viable as a young girl. She doesn't seem rehearsed or artificial, and she's able to hold her own with the adult cast. McDonald Carey is serviceable as Jack Graham. Maybe it's a modern perspective, but I just didn't get his chemistry with Teresa Wright, but I believed her side of it. Now, to be fair, that's my only issue with the acting category is probably Carrie's casting and that relationship. Um, despite that one little niggle, I'm giving the acting 5 out of 5. Maybe 4.75 because of what I mentioned, but that rounds up to 5, so 5 out of 5 it is. Atmosphere. The aesthetic of the film, how it helps that the mood of the narrative pulls us into the story world. 
obviously filming on location in Santa Rosa, using that house for the Newton home, hiring local actors helped create the peaceful small town atmosphere that Hitchcock wanted, which is then contrasted by the cinematography, camera movement as ironic counterpoint. The use of noirish, low-key lighting, the use of shadow to create a foreboding atmosphere like on the train platform, the merriness of Tiomkin's score to capture the small town feel, put up against the refrain of the Merry Widow Waltz, Hitchcock utilized all the tools of the trade to achieve the desired feel, the desired mood. Mission accomplished. Five out of five on atmosphere as well. So yes, this is a near-perfect movie for me. With the rating system I've come up with, I hold true on 15 out of 15 for Shadow of a Doubt. Say what you want about Hitchcock the man, but the title of Master of Suspense is well-earned. We can argue till we are blue in the face whether Shadow of a Doubt is a film noir. For me, all the boxes for inclusion in that genre, that movement of American filmmaking, is there, despite existing in its own realm outside of the influences that seeded that movement. That was just Hitchcock being Hitchcock. I will concede, however, on point, Shadow of a Doubt is just that, a shadow of a doubt casted by Uncle Charlie that the role is a quote-unquote sty, but with the final words of pity from his namesake indicate Hitchcock, or the story at least, still believed in humanity, whereas Noir, as it went along, challenged the purity of that belief. Some strong words I know, but that's my final word on Shadow of a Doubt. For those following us, let us know, do you think Shadow of a Doubt is its own Hitchcockian outlier in the early Noir era, or do you think it's indeed and should be classified as a film noir? Until the next time, I'm Joshua Taylor, and this is Lighting the Pipes Noir.